When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What is the theory of language behind our understanding of free speech? Today I'm joined by Sonia Das, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology at New York University. As a specialist in linguistic anthropology, She wants to know how abstract ideas about speech are lived by human beings and how language not only reflects the world we live in, but constructs it too. Is hate speech, for instance, just speech we dislike or a phenomenon that impacts the way we live? She's an expert in linguistic anthropology and colonial linguistics and the author of Linguistic Rivalries, Tamil Migrants and Anglo-Franco Conflicts, published by Oxford University Press. special guest and anthropologist, Sonia Das, who is professor of anthropology in New York University's Department of Anthropology. And I'm really happy you're here today, Sonia. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to hear a little bit about your own work has been on sort of linguistic practices and the politics of language, yes. and you're an anthropologist by training, and right. maybe you can add a little bit, you know, the speech debates are a big topic on campus. Right, and, right. And I wonder how you kind of think about them or right. approach them? Well, thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. I, I've been thinking about these issues of free speech probably since the beginning of the presidential cycle, the end of the last election. A lot of us in linguistic anthropology have been trying to articulate what would be the position of linguists and anthropologists on a topic that is obviously about language, and yet linguists have not featured prominently in this discussion. And so, as linguistic anthropologists, we're really interested in the role of language as social action. So really, free speech debates about whether speech is, you know, harmful or not, and in what context, it's right. all about what we do in linguistic anthropology, thinking about linguistic practices as not just reflecting the world, but actually constructing the world in which we live in. So this so, is where, yeah. so the difference would be for linguistic anthropologists, yeah. you don't just look at this is a word, it means the following, exactly. but it actually creates meaning. Exactly. And, and it gives people a way to think this is important, this is not important, this is good, this is bad. So it's actually about the practice you're saying as yeah. how language operates in the world yeah. and can shape the world for many people. Exactly, yeah. So I mean, I think that It wouldn't be so much of a divide between, say, okay, there are linguists who think that language reflects the world, it describes the world, it asserts, versus we think language is shaping the world only. It's more nuanced than that in the sense that as linguistic anthropology, we think of language, first of all, language as part of culture, right? So there's not this distinction between language and culture. So culture, it, you know, cultural practices, language practices, but also that language, because of its its structure, right? And a language is a highly structured system. Right. And so, you know, that has evolved over time in different communities. It does, to a certain extent, reflect or it draws our attention to what we think is reflected in the world, but also it draws our attention to the possibilities of how language can create new things that we assume is already reflected in the world. Okay. So okay. it's this idea that it's called, to use very technical terms, that The way in which language is used in context presupposes certain things as already existing, but also entails new kinds of meanings that we assume exist, but they only exist because of some sort of ideological force. And actually, that's something yeah. lawyers would understand because yeah. they actually deal with rulings, mm -hmm. which may not 
establish the truth, but actually have consequences in the world. So yes. the legal language sort of has a real direct impact that's felt for people in one way. I think that's yeah. really easy for people to understand. Yeah. So is that one example of how language can actually have an impact on the context in which it is supposed to operate rather than just yeah. it's a given, it means this or that? Yeah, I mean, legal language would be, you know, one of the more obvious examples. I mean, even the fact that we have this thing called the First Amendment, right, which is very broad, very general, but it's been interpreted in different legal cases and the way it's written will have impacts on future cases. So, yeah, that's a really great example. But actually, you know, most of us anthropologists were interested in everyday life. Right. So even in just like a conversation, right, the things get that get implied and the sort of the implications, how those get built on and how they lead to new kinds of social action, new identities emerge, new values are shared or they're contested. So all that stuff that we take for granted as being fixed, like the normative aspects of society, we take a different view and we see sort of normativity as something that's, you know, con both being reproduced and contested through everyday interactions. Right. So we're, we're kind of focusing on more of the everyday, but of course the implication is at the level of sort of, because I'm interested in politics, we can think of legal language, we can think of political discourse. And what was your work? So you wrote yeah. a book on kind of linguistic rivalries on yeah. Tamil migrants in Franco-Anglo. This is in yeah. a Canadian context, yeah, correct? So yeah. you've been interested in kind of charged language yeah. or language that has direct social implications yeah. before, before the election of President Trump, right? Yeah. So this yes. is your work before that yeah. in a book that Oxford published. So can you say a little bit about how your work was already focusing on this political aspect before? Yes. In linguistic anthropology, my training has been focused on what we call language ideology, which is, you know, very brief general definition. It's the, the kind of commonsensical ideas that people have about language and how those are related to and, and the kinds of moral and political interests that are in, that are imbued or implied in the ways in which we think about language. So ideology, not in a negative sense, just no. our assumptions about exactly. language. Exactly. So the ideas we, we have and the structures yeah. we think it operates under. Exactly. And, and But more politically, how those assumptions participate, what I was most interested in, in political processes. So my original research was on nationalism and what I thought was going to be discourses of multiculturalism in Canada and, and in Quebec specifically and in the city of Montreal. And how did you get interested in that? Oh, uh, well, that's more, I'm from Montreal. My mother's family is from there. They're okay. French-Canadian or Québécois. And my father is a, was an immigrant, an Indian immigrant okay. to Montreal. So I was born there. And so you I write about this in my book, actually. So you had all those languages already in your, exactly. in your world and in your both yeah. family and context and, yeah. and the country. Okay. Yeah, and so um, it's interesting moving to the U.S. at a young age. People don't think about the politics of language on an everyday basis as they do in Quebec. I mean, it's kind of the bread and butter there. Everybody's thinking about language. Everything is political. So it's a great way to, you know, so doing research in Quebec, it was easy for me to get people to talk about language as, as part of politics and the language politics. It was also very contentious. So, you know, there, there were some times when I asked questions that led to certain doors being shut, but that it was also really important research for me. And, and you yeah. said in Quebec, it's obvious to people almost because it's sort of a contested space or people yes. argue what language is the right one to use and what exactly. order, etc. Yeah. But yeah. when then you come to the US where you said people are maybe not as aware, I think we're very aware sort of with Spanish, yeah. right? And sort yeah. of immigrant communities sort of who are supposed to be brought into proper American English right exactly. away. So I think that's what people are aware of. But beyond yeah. that, I'm not sure there's a huge emphasis on language that's used. And there's not the same kind of mobilization at the level of national identity. You know, so in the U.S., you've got certain states in which there have been movements to promote language rights, particularly, you know, sort of in the West Coast. Also, you know, around this area, the Northeast. My research was on heritage language, which is a concept that, you know, may not be used everywhere, but this idea that as an immigrant, first or second or third generation, so as a minority, if you are part of a minority language community or family, the idea is that you have the right to be educated or to learn that language, not okay. just in spoken language, but also the written language. So the Canadian government funds this. So that the public, public institutions, the government should recognize that people have other languages they bring to this nation and yeah. they have a right to be educated or live in this language. And yes. that's, you can speak a language at home, but at school and everywhere else you're gonna use English. So. Right, so in Quebec the idea is it's a little bit more complicated. And you know, I don't wanna make it sound like this is a, you know, a value that's been you know, not contested itself in the Canadian space. A lot of it, it was very specific. This, is, this program, Heritage Language Programs, emerged 
in uh, the 1970s when there was a mobilization against when, when the sort of the French nationalists came to power in Quebec, right? So they took over the provincial government. Okay. And so it was a concession. It was very literally called a concession to minority voters to get them to come aboard the French nationalist, um, the Quebecois nationalist project, okay. you know, which ultimately got decided in referendums and, you know, sort of never came to right. fruition. Right. But it was about, you know, so now you can petition if you have enough parents that say we want our school to teach Arabic or we want our school to teach Tamil or Hindi after school or during lunch. The resources are there, then the public right. school system will offer those classes. Unlikely that this will happen here, <laughs> I think. In New York City, yeah. where we have probably up to 200 languages spoken yeah. actively by yeah. students in the entire school system. So yeah. this would be a great place. But people will say immediately, we don't have the resources, we can't do that. And secondly, they'll say, but then the kids won't learn proper English if they yeah, have Tamil exactly. or they have you yeah. know, Bangla or they speak something after in yeah. the afternoons. Shouldn't they be brought into this mainstream to speak like Americans? Yeah. So the, you know, the English-only movement in the U.S. operates around this kind of moral panic about what's going to happen in English. The quality of English will deteriorate if we let in these other languages. So not just the children won't learn English, but that the state of English will be threatened, most specifically by Spanish, right? Okay. But and So that's sort of at the national level, the discourse. But then you could see, for example, in New York City, where Bengali, which is my mother tongue actually also, is one of the you know largest languages, one of the languages spoken by the largest number of people in New York City, you, you know, you can have translators providing services for parents and children in Bengali, but teaching them Bengali in a school is seen as, well, first of all, no one's thinking about Bengali, but you can imagine a situation in which, say, the South Asian population right. is being vilified in a certain way, then it would become you know, a political issue. Yeah. So th these questions about race are actually very central. But that's um, interesting how it intersects. The, the yeah. political thinker Hannah Arendt once said in a very problematic essay, Yeah. But nonetheless, an interesting thing, in the second generation, the accents disappear, yeah. but visible markers of difference, namely racial difference, don't disappear. Right. She said there's visibility, which is different from audibility. I still have an accent. Uh -huh. My children who are bilingual don't have an accent in right. English anymore. Right. So in some ways, she said, with generations, successive generations, they become Americanized in mm -hmm. this normative way. Yeah. You're saying there's a moral panic that this English will be bad English. That the future yeah. of the world will speak bad English. So let's put that aside. Okay. But what you just said, that racial identity is yes. sort of connected to this in a yes. way? Yes. So my research in Canada was post 9-11, right? It was also one of the things that we don't know in the U.S., but the migration of Tamil speakers from Sri Lanka in the aftermath and during the civil war there was much more pronounced in Canada. The U.S. was pretty much limiting that migration. So Canada is much more generous refugee policy. After 9-11, discourses about terrorism and terrorists crossing the border into the U.S. led to a response among the Canadian government trying to sort of, you know, identify terrorist groups within Canada as okay. they're working in conjunction with the U.S. Okay. Also, you've got the, so, so during this context, as Sri Lankans were, Tamils were migrating to Canada in large number, I mean, there's probably more than 200,000 in Canada in Toronto alone. And then they're also, I was also interested in Indian Tamils, and there are very different social classes, and you know, so there was a divide, even though they speak the same language, there was a you know, kind of internal divide. But what was interesting is that this idea of the, in French, the Tamun, which means the Tamil, as a racial slur started to emerge. And it means terrorist, and it's used interchangeably regardless of your phenotype. So you're saying yeah. there's a new context, new political context. Yeah. Because of what happens in the U.S., Canada is also swept up in this kind of anti-terrorism yeah. fever. Yeah. And now people who are otherwise very distinct, very different, yeah. are swept into one category, which yeah. becomes a category for terrorists. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and, and it's used interchangeably with, you know, sort of racial slurs targeting Arab people believed to be of Arab descent, which is really not always the case. Okay. So, and people believed to be Muslim and sort of... So this category, which doesn't make sense to Americans, really, this idea that the Tamil would be seen as a racial slur, but it has become so in the last... Become so, okay, interesting. Yeah. And so that has led to... I was interested in how this idea of like the Tamil as a racial slur was leading to the ways in which Indians and Sri Lankans were differentiating their language, you know, trying to say, well, we speak different languages. And so that was the right. context of that research. Right. But the question about race and identity, I think, is 
is really interesting because if you go back to how anthropologists or linguistic anthropologists think about language in society, you know, again, we don't think just like, oh, okay, every racial group has its own, you know, or every ethnic group has its own language and that's their identity, right? But that there's more of a dialectic relationship. So when the national discourse or the regional discourse about race shifts, people themselves are going to use language in different ways. Okay, and you mean dialectical then just to break this down a little bit? Yeah. So kind of mutually interdependent. So there's one yeah. process on one side, yeah. the terms start to mean something and then people respond to it also. Right, and the language itself can change And the too. language changes. And that the language structure itself is also limiting the kinds of responses that people are making. So it's kind of this back and forth and there's there's theories, I mean, sort of we can trace back to early 20th century, mid 20th century ideas about and even earlier ideas about how the structure of a language will influence or predispose us to think about the world in certain ways. That's interesting. And I don't want to go, you know, we're definitely not promoting any kind of deterministic view, but there's okay. definitely an influence. An influence. So yes. let's do, the only things I know here, I'm very uninformed, is sort of Wittgenstein language games and Chomsky, sort of this, yeah. is, is this a determinist, would that be more closer to a deterministic idea? That, that well, I would separate parameter? the two, yes. and sort of put Chomsky in the, par in, the, in the category of a more like kind of a referential or Cicerian view that language is kind of, language is, is is just a reflection, sort of, that, that actually language in society is irrelevant, right? That okay. we need to just study language as a system, whether okay. it's grammatical or cognitive, whereas Wittgenstein was more interested in language as interaction, right? right. So that would fall it's more game, under... No rules, yeah. yeah, but, you know, sort of that's kind of following right. under this. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think Wittgenstein's ideas about language as, you know, the rules of language as a game would fall under more of a pragmatic view of language. Okay. And this is really directly relevant to how I'm thinking about the First Amendment. Because, and you know, so I'm still very much in the beginning of my research on issues of free speech in, in sort of the American context. But one of the things that struck me in talking to legal scholars and actually looking at some of the literature is that there's a very particular theory of language that's being enshrined in our, whether it's not so much in the Constitution, but the, inter the legal interpretation of free speech. And so I think this is really the area of research that has not been right. fully explored. Like, what is our theory of language that we're operating on right. in our legal system? That's actually really fascinating because yeah. I've read a fair amount, not nearly enough, yeah. but a fair amount of kind of jurisprudence and legal interpretations and mm -hmm. justifications for applying one or another free speech principle. Yeah. Almost none of them talk about what they assume language yeah. is or how it works in the world. They just assume it's self-evident. Yeah. Language is what we speak and it means things and people understand it. Yeah, it's, a, exactly. it's so simplistic, it's not even how language works in an everyday interaction where right. I can misunderstand you. That's almost not really permitted yeah. to be, or not necessary yeah. for them to operate. Exactly, exactly. So, so from what I understand about sort of legal jurisprudence and the interpretations of free speech and then also hate speech, well, first of all, I think that there's very few cases in which we can label something as hate speech that's been prosecuted, right? And so really, uh, most of the legal scholars tell me that hate speech is more kind of like an ideological construct than any something really legally, you know, something right. that exists legally. In the law currently, let's say, hate speech, people hesitate to give it a clear definition. They say, okay, if it is attached to certain things, yes. which sort of obscenity, as you said, in sort of yeah. the work you've already done, sort of yeah. obscenity, incitement, direct incitement, that yeah. a reasonable person would understand as such. Okay, right, right. So, so I really... I really honed in on two things that I saw in these cases, which is this idea of a real reasonable person right. and also the idea of intent. And okay. so from my I have this written down, so my understanding of the legal cases in the US, it's this idea that what would a reasonable person interpret as the intent to cause harm? Right. And that would be the basis for perhaps sort of limiting free speech rights, right? And sort of whether or not it's called hate that, speech. That's right. So if it, so, they're assuming there's a speaker and there's, there's someone who hears the speech and then yeah. there's this external kind of yeah. sort of clear-minded, neutral, yeah. benevolent legal witness who yeah. says, I'm reasonable and yeah. I hear it as such. And yeah. I either hear it as direct incitement, yeah. fighting words or something, or I hear it as a kind of obscenity that's so gratuitous and has no other merit. Right. But they're assuming there's this person who's kind of... Could you explain to me who would that person be who could look at language as an interaction and be reasonable and be sort of removed from it? Right. 
So this is where the anthropology becomes really useful in yeah. thinking cross-culturally, right? And so, so before I answer that, so who would be a reasonable person? I actually have no idea, <laughs> legally speaking, how that's being imagined because my sense is that the kind of dialogical view of language's interaction, that, that one of the aspects of the dialogical view of language is that language is interaction, right? That involves, right. you know, more than one person, just a speaker, maybe a speaker, a listener, multiple parties, and that, right. that everybody's kind of co-constructing the meaning, right? That would be one view of the dialogical view of language. I suspect that that's very far from the ways in which the kind of philosophical underpinnings of our legal system in the ways in which they think about language as something other than merely a transparent description of the world. Right. So already they're kind of out of their field. Although yeah. I would say, of course, correct, with the huge caveat that we have this incredibly exciting jurisprudence for 200 years where people dispute every single interpretation of every single word in the law. So in right. some way the law right. on the one hand assumes it's reasonable, we'll understand, and then Every contract put in front of a judge or jury is debated, disputed, so the law outside has enormous capacity to see things in different ways. But at this moment, right. it's just saying there's a reasonable understanding, let's not open this up to... Right. But I mean, there's a, a certain model of authority. Who's the authority in, in this act of interpretation, right? And it's not, it's not the listener, really. It's, yes. not, it's, it's the sort of the judge, the jury, the, the lawyer. And that's really the important. Elite. Right. So in, in the context that you brought up of hate speech, there's a speaker and then there's presumably a listener. Mm -hmm. And the claim yeah. is that this is injurious, harmful yeah. to the quality or dignity or standing of this person who's being addressed in, a, in this way. Right. But then there's this reasonable person, person outside who is not feeling this impact, but yeah. just adjudicates yes. what is the impact. Yes, yes. So it's it's not a model of the listener. It's a, it's still very much a speaker-focused model of language yes. in which there are these external evaluators that were never part of the original interaction. So going back to this idea of hate speech, I mean, thinking anthropologically, so there's the idea of the reasonable person that one could sort of take apart and deconstruct. And then I was also very much interested in this idea of intent, right? Could I just stay on the oh, reasonable sure. person yeah. for a moment? Yeah. So when you said sort of, you said something earlier, if I get this right, yeah. cross-cultural competence. Yeah. As an anthropologist, yeah. when, is there a role for someone like a reasonable person who is sort of looking at an interaction? Because yeah. in a kind of old, sort of early 20th century idea of anthropologists, isn't it what anthropologists did for a while? They would go somewhere, observe some social interaction, and then write about it? Or, yeah. So can you say a little bit more how anthropology with a yeah. cross-cultural understanding breaks that down, this illusion of the neutral objective bystander. Oh wow, that's a, that's a, yeah. okay, that's a good... You know what I mean, like, could yeah. the anthropologist be the one, couldn't I just get you as an expert witness and say you are the linguistic anthropologist, you can explain to me whether this hate speech okay. is really hate speech. But then you're still operating within a category of the expert, right? Yes. And so, yes. so anthropology, in, in sort of the reflexive turn of anthropology, you could say that anthropology is known as engaging in practices of participant observation, right? We participate in a community's everyday life, yeah. and then we've got sort of one foot in the community and one foot out of the community, and that gives us a kind of sort of objective stance to be able to right. to make the exotic familiar and the familiar right. exotic, right. right? And that's sort right. of been the hallmark of anthropological expertise. So one can say, let's take an anthropologist and make them the adjudicator, and that would just be swapping one model of expertise for another. I guess what I would say is that going back to this idea of the theory of language, right, and how it's not a very dialogical theory of language, it's still very speaker-focused. If one were thinking cross-culturally in sort of anthropological studies of communication and language use, you know, sort of around the world, one of the things that we've discovered is that the ways in which responsibility and reasonableness, or the way in which we attribute responsibility for the effects of language, how language has a kind of effect in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically, you know, a more pragmatic view of language. You could look at different communities and see how their own theories of language embrace the notion that language, its meaning doesn't emerge from the speaker or an external expert, but is being produced okay. through that interaction itself. And can yeah. you give an example sort of when we're looking at hate speech before yeah. we go to intent, sort of you're saying yeah. so speech the impact of speech is produced as much by the way language operates in a community as by the speaker him or herself. So I want to say something. I want to have this intent. Yeah. I can't entirely control that because yeah. there's a pattern or context or history to these words that give it some kind of meaning that yeah. is not mine entirely. Right, right, exactly. So we're not going to a kind of 
yeah. postmodernist, there's no meaning at all, intent no. at all, there is yeah. intent, but it will be influenced or shaped or sometimes derailed or amplified by the context in which this community thinks language operates. Yes. Yeah. So I guess there's two ways to approach this. You could think about it cross-culturally and look at communities in which they either don't recognize intent as meaningful or they think that intent might be meaningful, but it's it's unknowable and therefore it's irrelevant in determining the outcome of an interaction. Okay. And there's been research between the Pacific that's sort of documented this. Interesting, and, yeah. So, the, so you can think about, well, you know, in these particular communities, how are they attributing responsibility and blame for the effects of language or communication? And they would do so by thinking about sort of regardless of the speaker's intent, right. what was the effect? Right. And so so I guess what, going back to the U.S. case or, you know, sort of other cases in which there's this notion of intent that's enshrined in the law, we have to ask ourselves instead of saying, well, intent doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because of our legal system right. and the kinds of ideologies that we have right. about language. Right. It is a social fact. And right. so, so another thing that I, I'm interested in doing is thinking more historically and sort of thinking about how, and this is still you know, sort of a work in progress, but mm -hmm. why is it that intention has become the basis upon which we're attributing, or it's sort of the most limited way in which we can possibly conceive of language as having a social sort of impact in the world, right? Because it's not, as you think, it's not just as a linguistic anthropologist, but as a person in the world, we yes. know that it's not just the intent of what somebody says and we that all determines how we understand or yeah. how we respond to something. Yeah. Even if that. someone tells you in a sarcastic way, yeah. I wouldn't step on that. Mm -hmm. The intent may be to want you to step on it. And you're like, I'm not going to step on this. It's a snake yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Like yeah. They, you know, irony, for example, undermines the whole idea of intent. Someone tells exactly. you something and you know you're yeah. smart enough to say, yeah. he means the opposite. Exactly. Or he wants to trick me or something. So intent yeah. is shaped by how we hear it. Yeah. So it's not just anthropologists. So, so yeah. if you go a little further with this, so you sort of, tr yeah. you, you want to see, is there a reason why we privileged intent yes. so much. Yes. So I mean, I think what you're saying is that, you know, when we, in everyday co life conversation, we know that intent doesn't mean everything and we don't act accordingly, right? And we play with language in many creative ways and that's what we do. But yet then we've got this, these kinds of, we've got these institutions that are promoting a particular view of language. So this is why it goes back to questions about reflexivity. To what extent are we, what can we, what can we access? How are we accessing what language is doing in our everyday life, to what extent can we really think about what we're doing with language? And we're sort of predisposed, not just through the grammar of our language, but also through these larger discourses about language, our legal institutions, how we go to school and we think about, right. you know, what are valued languages and what are not valued languages. So as we live our lives in society, we're constantly being inculcated or, you know, socialized yeah. into certain limited ways of thinking about language, which are more or less in line with these larger institutional forces of which one is the legal system. Okay. So what I'm interested in doing is... What I'm interested in doing is partly thinking about the history behind why intent has become so significant. And a lot of people have written about this, you know, in philosophy and anthropology, so I'm not contributing anything new. But I think that, you know, another problem that we should add to this question of hate speech and free speech is the notion speech, right? So if you actually think about it, from what I understand, the law is not really only about speech, like the verbal language. But it could be symbols, of right? Course. And yeah. so, so why are we using this term speech, really? And then, in, in a sense, so it, it, it's constructing a particular divide between oral, the, the sort of orality and literacy, right? right? They're spoken and they're written. And, and then once you start thinking about that, then you can start tapping into all those kinds of ideologies that, you know, since the 16th century, 16th, 17th century and early modern Europe and sort of through the Enlightenment and to, right. you know, present day, how we attribute certain kinds of notions to speech versus uh, written language. This idea that speech is relatively harmless mm -hmm. has a particular history, right? In which the written language was seen as the more consequential language. And that yeah. was something that, you know, sort of definitely by the 18th century, by the time we wrote our constitution, was, was kind of very firmly established. And that's where we see the emergence of copyright and we still see practices of censorship, right? So. This idea that written language is something more um, consequential, something more fixed. Therefore, spoken language and those spoken cultures are sort of less, you know, sort of less harmful, right? right? 
to add something to this yeah. in the American context, I yeah. also think the way the First Amendment is celebrated is usually mm -hmm. it's the individual's right to contest the language of the government yes. or the actions of the government. Yeah. And the government, as you're saying, they are enshrined in written documents. Yes. Their laws or their statutes or their you know, constitutions. Yeah. And in some ways, there's this weird way of fearing that there's an imbalance between these mm -hmm. kind of biblical-like written text yeah. and then this one individual speaking out yes so, yeah that's great so free speech is kind of protected as my individual expression versus mm. this overwhelming institutional power yeah the first amendment really regulates that the government cannot tell you to shut up exactly it doesn't say much else actually and it exactly. actually really says only acts of congress so it really is very specific yeah speech has been opened up which is kind of interesting i think your work is kind of helped by the fact that now campaign finance contributions are speech. Mm -hmm. That burning certain things, crosses, flags yes, are speech. Yes, so yes. speech is really broad yeah. by First Amendment theorists. First, yeah. But yeah. they don't really start at the first place where you're starting to say, what e even is speech? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you exactly. Just expand the concept in a way that dilutes it maybe to a point where you can say, well, you haven't even figured out the first part. Yeah. What is speech really in society? Which is why I think that I've been trying to think about sort of the campus debates, right? And right. how to put this in there. Because one of the questions you had told me that you were interested in was about what's unique about this particular moment and what's going on in the college campuses. I think that labeling these issues as issues of free speech and hate speech, which is what I myself did in that workshop, is some ways a distraction or misleading us from sort of the larger issues of what's going on and, and sort of making us think of this as a singular moment, right? Very unique or very specific to right here and now. But I think what I'm seeing when we think about sort of how the legal interpretation of free speech is moving beyond actual verbal acts of criticizing the government, right? right. To things about infringing on copyright, slander, right? you know, all these kinds of things are sort of being enfolded or being imagined as possibly being enfolded. I think that it, it falls under a broader rubric. So I, I, I was trying to think about it as sort of a rubric of censorship, you know, mm -hmm. and how do we think about sort of what's going on in college campuses as tapping into larger debates about the censorship of ideas. Okay. And that's kind of what I'm finding to be more productive because once we start thinking about free speech or hate speech, right. then of course someone will ask you, well define hate speech, right? right. And then of course, legally there's nothing actually, there's hate crimes, but there's no there's, there's currently yeah. no definition and secondly people will say but free speech doesn't need a definition because it's self-evident right we all know what it means so in some funny way they're saying free speech is anybody can say anything whatever Which except as you just pointed yeah. out except the law is always recognized in this country and everybody every human being actually yeah. recognizes there are rules in human interactions right if yeah. i kept on interrupting you the entire time mm -hmm. it's not going to have the effect that we want to have a conversation so right. in some ways exactly. there are rules we accept right hate speech i think what's interesting what you're saying there are larger questions and there may be more about how does the university function what are the rules yeah. we accept when we come in yeah and one of the default assumptions is oh the rules should be Anybody can say anything, right. which I don't believe is really true. And a couple other right. guests on the podcast have said that is not how universities operate. Right, right. Of course not. I, yeah. I'm actually talking yeah. to you because you're an expert and you're a trained anthropologist and you've done enormous amount of research. I just don't invite anybody off the street because it could right. be helpful, it could be free speech, but it doesn't really add anything to my goals, which right. is to understand exactly. things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this question about the campuses, well, first of all, I think we need to distinguish again between private universities and public universities yes. which, in which the laws are different. But at NYU, which is a private university, you know, free speech laws don't really apply because it's not about criticizing, you know, the government really, right? And so it becomes a broader question, I think, about pedagogy. It becomes a question about the values of the university. And it becomes a question about, I think, questions about expertise and authority and I think that we're in a moment you know this is where I'm kind of still trying to struggle to come to terms yeah, with what's yeah. happening I taught a class last semester or two semesters ago called language power and identity and this is the first time I actually had my students discuss free speech issues and there was a moment in the class where two students were actually you know one student said well I don't think the government should limit how I speak about transgender people. And he was referring to a new law in Canada that had been passed, he's a Canadian. And another student was very offended because she found that offensive that 
this other student was not recognizing, you know, the rights of a transgender person to be called by the preferred pronoun and, 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 and other issues like that and acknowledging the history of prejudice and discrimination. It was a really eye-opening moment for me as a teacher, not really in that moment knowing how to handle these questions of whether we call it censorship or not, should I censor their students' views so that, you know, that the class will function properly? Should I censor one of the students? So one of my students asked me, I don't think you should call on the student so much, the one who was, you know, and, right. and so it, I think these are all really important pedagogical questions, actually. Yes. And also in which as, you know, university teachers, we don't actually know all the answers for. Right. And the other thing is, I think that students have a lot to teach us about this particular moment in time. But to go back to this for a oh, moment, sure. your hesitation would be... In some ways, as a teacher, you wouldn't want to censor, and no. you wouldn't want to say you can't say that because yes. I think it, yeah. usually you try as a teacher to say this has some pedagogical merit, yeah. even if the question is maybe not phrased quite the way one would yeah. want. You say, okay, we can talk about this. Yes. If the other student says, I find this, and I'm interested in this, when they say I'm I'm offended, yeah, a lot of people say, well, your feelings, you can sort of check them at the door. Mm -hmm. But yeah. what you said earlier, yeah. language operates not in a vacuum. In some yeah. ways, you cannot check your feelings at the door. Yeah. You know, yeah. you cannot yeah. check your politics at the door. Actually, yeah. one of the famous Supreme Court cases allowed yeah. students to have political expression in school and yes. say you don't leave your politics at the door. Right, right, yes. But so this student is bringing her politics into the classroom. Yes. And I think this is right. There's a question here. How do you navigate? that yeah. because you're supposed to create the space where anything goes except mm -hmm. it's supposed to have a purpose and if one student right. leaves the room feeling this is not allowing me to participate anymore yeah, yeah. then that's not working exactly so. and so I mean I you know just to make a long story short I met with each of the students and tried to sort of see what their point of view was and I wrote right. an email I you know I sort of read out my interpretation of free speech and why I thought, and you know, sort of made it an open-ended question. I mean, my class was about language and power and right. identity. So I was inviting this. I was just not fully prepared for what would right. happen, which right. is part of sort of this, this kind of thing about language. You can't really anticipate what's gonna happen and sort of questions about responsibility. I think this is really what is at the heart of these debates. It's about how do we how do we attribute responsibility for the effects of language, right? And the effects of language as a cultural practice in which we are part of a community, even if these communities might be more or less ephemeral, in which we have relations with one another. Right. And so these are, I think these are great questions to be pursuing in a class. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, if, and so if I teach the class again, I will be more aware and sort of make it part of the discussion, you know? So I, I, I personally don't... But also what yes. you're saying, what I hear you saying, it was a challenging thing. Yeah. It was a what we call a teachable moment or yeah. an opportunity. It could be resolved mm -hmm. from a position that you have in the classroom of some power and some yeah. kind of authority. Right. But it wasn't a crisis and a total breakdown. And I think yeah. what I've seen a little too much in the media is this characterization, yeah. which is a caricature of the universities. Yes. Like, oh, these overly sensitive students shutting down debate. And you're yeah, saying a student said... Is this really pedagogically useful, helping us? Yeah. And why do we keep on coming up with this question in some ways, whether it's the one student speaking a lot or saying, okay, this is, yeah. is this really worth debating in a certain way or is it actually countering what we're trying to do? Well, I even think I would take it a step further. I think the student that was offended about how the other student said that the, he didn't want there to be free speech limitations on his use of pronouns, right? That was the... Right. Yes. She really educated me about the ways in which I'm even like responding to the conversation in class and, and sort of, you know, so, so I felt it was a teachable moment, right, for me and, and also sort of helped me to think about what's at stake for these students and how they're willing to take my class and willing to talk about right. things right. that they wouldn't be willing to talk about in other classes. And so that's a kind of sort of you know, it's, it's almost a social contract between us. Like, we're willing to tell you things about ourselves and explore our, our, our experiences and relate it to the academic literature, but we expect you as a teacher to be willing to understand where you are making a mistake. So I think there's right. a kind of humility that I learned or that, I, that was expressed and, and sort of, you know, as teachers, we are authorities. We know the literature, we sort of set the syllabus. You know, these are all practices of censorship, right? right. I'm writing the syllabus, this right. is what I want you to study, but yet 
I think this particular moment of time, students are not exactly right now, and I don't really know this, you know, sort of I'm not a scholar of the higher education, but it seems that students are feeling more empowered. Yeah. Ideally, they would feel more empowered to input, give input I, and help us. I think yeah. there's two parts to it. I think there is, we are witnessing a generation that has yeah. adopted something which I think is quite powerful and saying, this is my truth. Yeah, And I think this is a position that is on every side of the political spectrum. I think yeah. it's a fantasy to think only sort of social justice warriors and transgender activists are saying this is my truth. I think right. you have exactly. the alt-right saying this is my truth. Yes. And you have everybody on every political you know, imaginable space saying this is my truth. And it comes yes. for so much. So I think the elevation of experience mm. is... That's a true. powerful thing because yeah. suddenly for the first time we're listening to people who we haven't listened to as an institution forever. Yeah. I always tell my colleagues, they used to refer to their you know female students as girls. You know, let the girls sit over here or something yeah. like that, yeah. or their female colleagues as girls. Yes. I said that has changed. Linguistic behavior mm-hmm. today unacceptable. Right. So I said to so if you have to use a different pronoun now, maybe you could learn how social reality moves on. There's yeah, progress. Exactly. The challenge is what you said much earlier. You said you started becoming interested after the election of President Trump, yeah. because we have a climate now where lots of kind of checks have been removed where there's a language possible in political space that really wasn't acceptable from positions and right. from people in, in positions of authority but to be perfectly honest i think i became interested because other people were interested in sort of this idea of censorship after the election of trump yes. yeah. but i was interested because i was coming up for tenure review yeah. and this idea of academic freedom also is tied into you know, so it's not by accident that I'm doing this research now that I've already gone through my tenure. So review. can you say something about this yes. sort of like your because it touches on what you as an academic can yes. express or be interested in? Yes, and I think that's you know, so to go back to the workshop, we had two speakers. So David Cole was talking about so this is what's going on in college campuses, and but he we the, he's the national legal director of the ACLU. Yes. And he was talking about, you know, the experience on college campuses, but he called he asked us to think about also, well, what about outside the university where it's a, you know, a less of a protected space and you know, sort of what happens here might become a model for what happens outside of this institution, how we need to think about outside the academic silo. And so that was one point. Another point we had, we had a journalist who came in and who was talking about sort of attacks on the freedom of the press. And so what I'm sort of interested in doing now is thinking cross-institutionally. So there's you know, freedom of the press, there's ideas about academic freedom, how we think about free speech in terms of, you know, what student groups can say, who they can invite, what's happening in the classroom. And then also I'm starting a new research project on policing. And I've actually gotten some, hopefully this will come through in a few days, funding in which I'm going to be looking at interactions between police officers and subjects in the context of DUI cases driving under the influence in South Carolina to look at these issues of both police, the use, excessive use of police force and, the ex, and sort of police violence, sort of this contentious issue about what's going on in these really highly charged interactions, right? And so one of my insights is that, that basically my, I guess, hypothesis is that not everyone enjoys the same freedom of speech rights as everybody else in this country, right? And, and sort of this makes sense. We can think about how racially, in terms of gender, and you know, sort of different minority groups are not enjoying the same free speech rights because of extra legal ways in which our language is being policed. And so this is something I'm interested in exploring and how it's playing out in interactions with police and subjects. So you're looking specifically about direct interactions between yes. subjects, people who have been stopped, stopped and, and then the police are asking them questions and yes. you're saying about the use of language in this context. In both cases, right? So yes. looking at the escalation of conflict in which technically a police officer is, you know, sort of, you know, a representative of the government and therefore free speech rights should be in play. You know, you should have the right to criticize a police officer. And yet we know that there are ways in which that is being limited, but also we understand that the police themselves feel under threat, you know, and sort of are trying to mitigate the escalation of conflict. So it's a really kind of complex issue. That's really interesting. I actually have a high school friend who was a police officer who was doing a very kind of difficult demonstration yeah. The police officers were giving instructions to the people where to move where they couldn't move. Yeah. And he said, this is useful to a point, but as soon as it crosses a line, yeah. citizens are not 
deputized and they're not soldiers or something like that. The police right. can give us instructions, but only to a point. If it's about our own safety, but the police cannot order us around. Mm -hmm. We're actually citizens. We're free. Right. And it was really interesting to me because I thought, well, the police officer tells you to move, you move. Yeah. But you can say, no, I, there's no reason for me to move. I can stand here. Right. So right. in some ways, what you're saying is where the free speech comes in and people who are in different positions may not speak up because they fear the repercussions or they're, that, yeah. they're being heard or listened to in different ways. Yeah, and I actually have access to video recordings of the video and body cam data, so I have seen that happening in which people say, well, I'm not going to respond because I'm, I'm a black man and I know the law, implying that. But also you can see in which there are, and this is something I'm still not sure yet, I still haven't looked through the data, but I, one can assume that that extra sort of other charges might be you know, taken against the suspect for escalating conflict verbally, for example, breach of peace, disorderly conduct, things like that. So, so there's, a, there's a lot, but, but what's more interesting to me in terms of this, this larger question about free speech, because a lot of people don't really necessarily see the connection between free speech and policing, is that I'm, I, right now I'm trying to understand what is the theory of language in policing interactions, right? The police officer and the suspect, they're so sensitive to this interaction, right? It's not yeah. just about I'm protesting the government, right, and making a speech. It's right. actually what's happening interactionally and what's going to be the outcome. Between the two people, let's say, at that moment. Yeah, in that particular moment. And so I'm interested in the training of officers, how they're being trained in terms of thinking about language, in terms of escalation of conflict, and, and sort of what are the assumptions of the, the subjects in terms of how we think about the effects of language. Right. You know, So I think that there are different institutions. So coming back to your original question about these different domains, I think, these different institutional yeah. domains in which we're seeing us talk about speech rights in a particular way. What are the commonalities and what are the differences? And I think what's so interesting for me in thinking about the campus situation and comparing it to the policing situation is that in some ways they're very different, right? And so here we see students trying to participate in a practice of censorship that has been traditionally been the domain of professors or you know administrators. We set the agenda, the students learn from us, right? And they're trying to sort of participate in the sort of collective right. educational experience, whereas now we're seeing in other domains where the ability to even sort of shape an interaction is being limited because it's a high conflict kind of situation. And I don't see those as, so So I think that- But we, you don't see them as analogous because one is a high conflict or, or you do see them as- I don't see them as analogous in the sense I think that if one were to, I think that I, I'm, I'm I don't, I, I think that the category of free speech could be legally evoked in both situations, right. but yet we're dealing with very different kinds of mm -hmm. understandings of speech, of what's free yeah. and rights, you know, okay. and, and with completely different populations. So right. I'm wondering why we're talking about free yes. speech right now. And yes. I think this has, there's, I think that, so, 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 yeah. I don't so, so you're saying yeah. because of this sort of, greater public attention and awareness of yeah. sort of, for example, police or injustice committed by the police, which is largely thanks to right. social movements like Black Lives Matter yeah. and social media because people can now have body cams and see it as evidence. Right. And it's harder to avoid acknowledging it because you yeah. can see it. Right. It right. used to be only some exactly. communities knew about it. So using that may inform why the free speech issue kind of migrates into all these other spaces. This is a free speech violation. It may, it may, it may not, it may not yeah. actually, and, and that becomes an interesting question. And I think it's also sort of this Black Lives Matter and there's Blue Lives Matter and sort of this, this, this contentiousness about how sort of who's to blame, right? And sort of I think it's coming back to these issues about not so much free speech because you don't really hear people saying so much this is a free speech issue in the policing context, but legally it could be construed as such, right? But you see a greater attention to language, yes. and also what you're talking yeah. about, social media and evidence. It's yeah. about evidence, it's about, again, how we're tracing the evidence of the effects of language and sort of it being captured on, you know, right. cell phones and dash cams and video cams, and, and so to what extent now is this leading to a reformulation of, of, of how we're thinking about language in a way that might be different, it may not be, and sort of it's a moving target. And so that's also really interesting. Um, yeah, it opens up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really great you're kind of opening up this category of speech in a much deeper way. And in some ways, it has not maybe been so helpful for it to be just applied as if, first of all, the law knows what it is and right. has taken sort of the, done the work to explain it. It just actually has to have a very kind of simple communicative 
ideal speech, although then it deviates from that all the time. Yeah. And to open it up in different contexts. Yeah. So it raises really useful questions, I think, how to think about the campus controversies in relation to other things happening right. in society. Right. Some of the proponents within philosophy of thinking about hate speech as something that should be seen as a social fact, right, have have looked towards this, this linguistic theory called speech act theory. Yes. And so in order to show that actually language has effects in the world, right? Which is like the greatest example is sort of this, this meeting is closed now, yes. class is over, yes. then class is over by simply misstating it. Right. So the, the utterance has some sort of performative effect, this yeah. idea of the performative utterance. But what's problematic about, in the philosophy of language, what's problematic about them working within this theory itself is its kind of Western-centric assumptions about language again, which goes back to ideas about intention. So speech act theory, as it was articulated in the mid-20th century, went down this pathway of saying that one can, that the, the sort of the performative effect of language depends on the intention of right of the speaker and, and the authority or power yes. or presumed authority and using yes. this other cultures or cultural context in which it may actually intent may not be the determining factor right so there's that so sort of we can think if we thought more sort of broader culturally not everyone thinks about intent as being relevant but then also if we were to construct a theory of language in which we think about language as performative one wouldn't necessarily privilege intention really in terms of Thinking right. about, right. again, going back to the way I was talking about sort of how language is part of the process in which we're reproducing society, but also sort of recreating yeah. itself. So I feel that unfortunately, a lot of the people that are doing work, whether it's in critical race theory or sort of various forms of, whether it's feminist jurisprudence or sort of trying to bring up this idea that hate speech is a real thing, right? They're still, they're still kind of working within these presuppositions about intent, right? Yes. And that yeah. one could actually... So if we were to sort of take intent out of the picture and think about language as just basically a form of social action and sort of think about the ways in which we attribute responsibility and, and, and sort of open that up and sort of legally open that up and think about, okay, so, so, and it's not just a question of, okay, well, if I say something harmful and that hurts your feeling, should I be held responsible or not? Because then, that, again, that's limiting, you know, right. sort of the idea to language as being sort of the meaning of language is only being produced within the interaction itself, but there's a whole history of, like you mentioned before, it, language itself is not simply located in the here and now, but is being well, formed. Certain words carry an entire history. Exactly. Even if I don't mean to invoke it, I just did. But exactly. And I maybe, so what you said much earlier about the, yeah. the idea of Tamil in yeah. Canada, which has changed yeah. its meaning. Right. And Right. As in, if I'm not familiar with Quebec, I wouldn't even know any of that. So yeah. I may actually use the term in some ways and suddenly carrying a history or exactly. resonance that I'm yeah. not aware of. So that's what you're looking at. Exactly. How that changes. Exactly. So I think I'll have you back at some point talk about speech act theory and feminist jurisprudence yes, and yes. critical race oh, theory. So, Sonia, so thank you <laughs> so much for joining us thank on the podcast. So well, I hope we'll get to talk again. And this is great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.